Romans chapter number 14 today. Romans chapter number 14. How many of you, when you go to a restaurant, you order the same thing every time when you go to that? How many of you, that's you, you order the same thing every time? Okay, lots of you. How many of you try something different on the menu, like you're just, you roam around, haven't had that yet, I'm going to give that a word. How many of you, that's you? Okay, about four of you. Okay, so how many of you have ever ordered off the menu, like off the menu, not from the menu? But you just said, hey, can you fix this? How many of you have ever done that before? That is, wow, I see a couple people out there. That's, those are the dangerous people right there. They're the people who are, are going rogue with the menu. Wouldn't it be nice for so many of us if there were such a thing as a Christian menu? And then anything on the menu, you can order and enjoy. If it's not on the menu, you can't have it, you can't do it, don't even ask about it. But if it's on the menu, the Christian menu, then it's yours to enjoy. Any movie or television show, any music, any clothing, any recreation, any purchase, any speech, any holiday, any celebration. If it's on the menu, it's fine for you to enjoy, but if it's not on the menu, then, then let's not ask. It may be convenient for the Christian life, but I would submit it is not healthy. In fact, you don't really have to think, or as was just sung, you don't have to walk by faith. You just have to look at the Christian menu. There is no Christian menu in the Christian life. The body of believers called the church is more akin to a greenhouse where, where the plants of many different shapes and sizes, all maturing at different times, producing unique fruit exist in a greenhouse together where the environment is conducive to growth. Within this greenhouse there are some absolutes around which we would gather. These absolutes would be the irreducible teachings around which we are gathering. They form what we oftentimes refer to for lack of a better expression as a doctrinal statement. These are our essentials they would include things like the inspiration and preservation of the scriptures, the deity of Jesus Christ, his, his bodily resurrection, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, and several other essential Bible truths. On these essentials, we gather and agree. But in matters of practice, there is, biblically speaking, room for latitude which the Apostle Paul is about to address in Romans 14. And while the greenhouse atmosphere is healthy, it's not without challenge. It never has been without challenge since the inception of the church. In fact, the Bible goes to great pains to actually record and reveal some of those challenges that were part and parcel with people gathering under the name of Jesus Christ. There were divisions over how people were being cared for in the church. 
There were issues over economic class distinctions. There were divisions over leaders and who the people would want to follow one over another. There were issues with people getting along, so much so that Paul calls them by name when he addresses the church at Philippi. And of course, there was a sharp division between the Apostle Paul and his ministry companion Barnabas, the division being so sharp that they broke fellowship and parted ways one with the other. And that's but a sampling of the challenges. Now, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is addressing two groups of people. He calls them the weak and the strong. Both of them, we should note, are groups of believers. Interestingly, the weak oftentimes thought that they were the strong. And the strong, if they were not careful, would begin to despise the weak. So Paul is going to address what we will title our message today, Disputable Matters, Guiding Us Through Bible Principles with How They Should Be Handled. There does exist in every culture, in every society, and in every church what we refer to as these disputable matters. Notice I did not say arguable matters. And let me bring that to our minds again. These are things over which we may say, oh, I I wouldn't do it that way. I would find this a disputable matter that there is not one consensus. But he doesn't call these arguable matters. This is clearly throughout Scripture forbidden. So let's consider the challenge that was present at the church in Rome, which is the challenge that remains for believers today. Consider the following questions that you and I may face regarding disputable matters. And again, I have chosen some that that may be those issues that are ours. Maybe they are issues that belong not to us but someone else. But oftentimes do become in our culture, in our day, and often in our churches, disputable matters. For example, should a Christian have a TV? or watch a movie in their home, or go to a movie theater, or only watch a movie at a certain kind, say an IMAX theater, or another venue, or only at home after it's released, or should they watch something never at all? What dress is appropriate and what is modest? What should we wear to church? Are white shirts and ties on men, skirts or dresses on women, a sign of worship and reverence to God? Or can we worship him in church with other types of clothing? And should a lady wear makeup or jewelry? Then if so, how much is too much or how expensive is too expensive? Further, what is modest? How tight is too tight or how short is too short? What about holidays? Should we participate in Halloween or just give out candy or turn the porch light off and do nothing at all? Should we hide Easter eggs when we celebrate the resurrection or have a Christmas tree in our home or church? How many children should married couples have? Is there any form of acceptable birth control? Should the child be born at home or at the hospital? How should children be raised? What form of bonding or scheduling or training is best to use? At what age should parents begin disciplining their children? How old is too old to spank a child? Is it okay for parents to give their children vaccinations or antibiotics? 
Should they get a COVID shot? When should a child be given a phone? When can they use social media? Should they be allowed to play video games? If so, which ones and for how long? What's the best schedule for church? When should the church assemble and for how long? Should it be Sunday school, then Sunday worship, Sunday night service, and Wednesday night? Or are there any other acceptable schedules? What type of music is acceptable? Is there only one type that can be used? Is there a clear line of appropriateness that can always be followed? And is there any room for preference in music? Is it morally wrong for a church to use pre-recorded music for its choir or special music? Should microphones be held or placed on a stand or not used at all? What instruments are acceptable for worship? Any instruments? No instruments? Some instruments? If some, which ones? Piano and organ only? Or brass and woodwinds and violin strings, but, but, but maybe not guitar strings? Or a timpani drum, but not another kind of drum? Further, what kind of songs should be used? Primarily old hymns or a blend of old and new hymns? Can choruses, worship songs be used? And if so, which ones and how often? How old should songs be before they can be sung? Can a song be too old to sing? Should songs be sung from a hymn book or from a screen, from both or from neither? Can a person play cards? If so, what kind of cards? Can he play with a regular deck of cards or only rook cards or uno cards, cards with a picture of a bird but not with a picture of people? Is it appropriate to lift up hands in church or should they stay in your lap? Can clapping in church be appropriate or is a timely amen the best form of acknowledging praise to God? And if so, how loud and how often is the amen to be applied? And can hallelujah, glory, or even shake that bush preacher be helpful expressions of worship and agreement. Oh, wow, that's quite a, quite a reading. How many of you have answer for all of those issues? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> many of these questions were not pertinent to the Church of Rome. But the principles laid out before us are applicable both to the church at Rome and the church to us today. In fact, I would submit that the issue at hand is not so much an issue for us today that was an issue to the church at Rome. So Paul gives us principles that go beyond the day. They reach past the culture and the principles become those that are true for all people, all places, and all times. And then let me also acknowledge this before we jump into this passage. Oftentimes sermons like this create some unease. They make us a little bit nervous because what is the potential for change with something with which we have become very comfortable? I would suspect or I would offer to you that, that while the sermon is not intended to bring unease, I think oftentimes scriptures are given to make us uneasy, at least to look at who are we, what are we doing, are we being consistent with the Bible principles? And Lord, as we answer those questions, oftentimes it does bring about in our lives either a confirmation, Lord, I think I'm practicing this, or an unease that says, Lord, help me take steps so that I am living in a manner distinctly like 
the scriptures unfold. The first thing we're going to look at today is where Paul begins, and that is accepting one another. Accepting one another. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 14. Let's begin in verse number one. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. That means don't continue quarreling, um, not this mental, verbal judging. Verse number two, for one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Do you see that expression again? For God hath received him. The passage of scripture that's before us is highlighting the fact that in non-essential matters, uniformity is not imperative, but unity is. Now that becomes challenging for us because we feel comfortable when, when people are similar, they're like us. We like some sense of uniformity. There is something for that as well. And let me at least acknowledge this. In, in our congregation, in Campus Church, there are those that are, some are part of smaller ones, some, many in fact, part of larger, what we refer to as institutions. Um, we have a, a pastoral team that's part of Campus Church. In each of those organizations, institutions, church bodies, there is some prescribed uniformity. Whereas Campus Church, we've said for our pastoral team, okay, for sake of uniformity, we're going to do this and we're not going to do that. We've just come together and there's been direction offered, uniformity that we all adhere to. But that's not the whole of the Christian life. We understand that while I may demonstrate uniformity in this area, that's not the demand of all of Christendom. And just because we have agreed on our pastoral team that this is what we're going to wear on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, or this is what we're going to wear on a Friday or a Tuesday when we come and, and do the work of the ministry, because we've agreed on that uniformity, it doesn't mean that that is the standard by which all believers from all places and all times should function. So before we go any further, please note that Paul is referencing matters that we would call morally neutral matters. As it pertains to doctrine, we recognize that there are not many ways to God. However, as uncomfortable as this often makes us feel, there are a variety of ways with which we can live the Christian life. It may not look exactly the same for every person. Did it look the same for those who had been birthed, raised, everything they knew was Judaism, the Jewish way of life as it pertains to the laws? Did it look the same for them as it did for a new follower of Jesus Christ who is born in a completely different culture in the city of Rome. Well, when they came together, that's going to look quite different. In fact, a council was actually convened in Jerusalem with the early church leaders, and they said, you know, it's going to look a little bit different for different groups of people. Let's come together on these essentials, and then let's give some breath for breathing 
for living the Christian life that may not always look the same. A Jew who had been continually driven by Jewish tradition, dietary laws, the keeping of special days and feasts, had been living in the shadow of things to come. They had ingrained these things in every area of their lives. Now they've come into a new covenant that's driven by grace and love. The shadows were no longer necessary in the light of Jesus Christ. But they'd grown up eating only meat that was kosher. It had been prepared correctly, blessed by the priest, fit for consumption. The Gentiles had never been bound by such a thing. They could purchase a steak on the streets and even in places where animals had been offered to a false god, yet they could eat and fully enjoy conscience clear. Well, the Jews had some very strong opinions about this. You say, well, wow, I'm I'm kind of having a hard time really processing the whole thing. Okay, Let's, um, let's just see if this person would have some strong opinions. Okay, let's say an older grandfather had worked on the assembly line for Ford since he was 19 years of age. He retired when he was, let's say, 68 years of age. He's driven a Ford all his life. He receives a pension from Ford. When he was just a boy, his dad had a Ford tractor, and he learned to drive it, and his dad drove a Ford truck. This grandfather, he was there and watched the first Mustang roll off the assembly line in 1964, and this grandfather has a 66 Mustang GT Fastback parked in his garage that comes out only on very special occasions. He's a Ford man. His 16-year-old grandson has been saving, and he came home, and he finally said, hey, Grandpa, I'm thinking about buying a car. And when he says that, Grandpa smiles. He sticks his chest out a little bit, and he says, well, what are you thinking about getting? And he says, a Toyota Prius. Now, let me ask you, does grandpa have some opinions about this? And and then let me ask you this, could they be understandable opinions? Could they be deeply held opinions? And may he express those opinions with some vehemence? Okay, quite possibly. And, And we might even say, understandably so. One Bible commentator wrote the following. Many people have the idea that the Christians who follow strict rules are the most mature, but this is not necessarily the case. In the Roman assemblies, the weak Christians were those who clung to the law and did not enjoy their freedom in the Lord. The weak Christians were judging and condemning the strong Christians, and the strong Christians were despising the weak Christians. You know, at times we may find it challenging to discern Who is the strong Christian and who is the weak Christian? In our day, we we sometimes scratch our head and say, well, I'm not even sure who here with the differences that are held, who's the one who's demonstrating a maturity in Christ and who's the one who's demonstrating an immaturity of Christ because both of them have come to different conclusions about these non-essentials. These areas that are really left up to individual discernment. Two of the most 
well-known believers in England during what we would call the Victorian age were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. They, they both were early ministry friends. In fact, they shared fellowship. They even exchanged pulpits. They would preach in each other's pulpit. But unfortunately, they had some very significant disagreements. They came to light and Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual, not a spiritual pastor because he often attended the theater. Parker fired back and accused Spurgeon of being unspiritual because of his poor example because he smoked cigars, both in private and in public. Each considered the other to be misled and misleading in their example. And their words grew very sharp. Their disagreement became such public news that the reports of it were carried in the London newspapers. Two great men of the faith broke fellowship with one another and their fellowship would never be the same. So let me ask you, did Spurgeon have good reasons for not going to the theater? I would assume he did. Was he the weak one or the strong one in this area? Good question. How about Parker? Did he have good reasons for not smoking a cigar? I believe he did. So again, was he the weak one or the strong one in this area? Once more, a very good question. Notice how Paul doesn't answer all the questions in this passage about what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. That's not his primary point. His primary point was to accept your Christian brother and sister in the Lord. He's making a strong point regarding the matter of accepting one another as fellow believers. And then he takes it another step. And now he starts to address the matter of judging one another judging one another and really what he's addressing here are those morally neutral areas morally neutral so look at verse number three and let's see what he says let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth for God hath received him who art thou that judgest another man's servant in other words he's saying hey listen we're all servants of God Let God be the judge. Look a little further. To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Verse 6. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. What Paul's addressing here are those things that had been deeply traditional for some believers in the church at Rome. But these were not essentials of the Christian faith. Do you know one of the things at Campus Church that we acknowledge and we do so willingly is we have things that are part and parcel of our traditional worship. That's okay for us to acknowledge. It is wrong, however, for us to apply a morality to our traditions. We apply morality to our doctrine, not to the simplicity of our traditions. 
if we're, if we're using Spurgeon as an example, there's another example that I read of and, and I think it's fitting when we start to think of, okay, which one is right and which one is not? Spurgeon some time ago was traveling to some meetings and someone watched him. In fact, another preacher watched Spurgeon board the first class compartment on the train with which they were traveling. This preacher, however, was in the third class carriage and he boarded his seat. Knowing that Spurgeon's in the first class car, he's back in the third class car. And the more he rumbled along in third class, the more frustrated he became at Spurgeon for traveling in first class. Finally, he couldn't handle it anymore, so he makes his way up to where Spurgeon was and he demanded, Mr. Spurgeon, what are you doing up here? I am riding back there in the third class carriage, taking care of the Lord's money. Spurgeon replied, And I am up here in the first class carriage taking care of the Lord's servant. Okay, who was right? The guy in third class taking care of the Lord's money? Spurgeon in first class taking care of the Lord's servant? The answer is, actually, you and I are not called to judge in this matter. It's a non-essential issue. It has nothing to do with doctrine and is what we would call a morally neutral issue. And... Who are you and I to judge? One pastor wrote, matters of conscience are those issues that involve no clear command of Scripture and therefore result in no sin. We are encouraged to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another to be morally pure. However, we are to be guided by our own conscience for other decisions. That's what it means to be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, some of you may be thinking, Well, this is dangerous because is he saying that truth is relative and that nothing is to be judged? And the answer to that is absolutely not. We judge things every day and we are called on biblically to do so. We must judge things on the basis of, is this true? Think about judging according to Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, he's saying, okay, now you're going to have to discern between what's true and what's not. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now I have to stand back a little bit and I have to discern, okay, is this truth or error? Is this morally pure? Is this morally impure? I have to start to judge. I have to separate between right and wrong. This passage doesn't say to accept everything as true or to accept everything as honest. You judge between these matters. But further, it doesn't say to judge your brother or your sister in Christ in matters over which the Bible has not spoken. For example, Paul spoke to the Corinthian church very directly, pointedly, regarding a man who was living in fornication. Paul judged, and there's no question about the conclusion. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not to be named, as as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. 
For I verily is absent in body, but present in spirit, notice this, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Does Paul speak against judging? Not in matters that pertain to morality. Not in matters with which the Bible has so very clearly and directly spoken. Well, does that mean that he's told us to judge everything? Can you judge? The answer is, of course. But are you to judge a Christian brother if they go to the grocery store on Sunday? Or if their kids are playing basketball in the driveway on a Sunday afternoon? Again, remember what Paul wrote. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. We see Paul addresses the matter of accepting one another, then of judging one another. And finally, he helps us understand we are to be focusing on one, not on one another. We are to be focusing on one, that is Jesus Christ. The focus of our attention is not to be on one another. Notice what he says, verse 7 and 8. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. When we focus on each other, we are coming together because we have all agreed that our do's and our don'ts are all the same. I would submit that this is dangerous because we become our own focus. It also limits who we are willing to reach and welcome because we all must agree exactly on dress or worship style, type of music, how it's to be presented. We must all agree on the number of gatherings for believers, the time it should be scheduled. We must agree on standards, not the principles of modesty and distinction. We must all agree what the holidays are that we'll observe, which ones are to be completely avoided. We must agree when's the best time to have children, how many children, the type of education. Sadly, this is often the extent of a church's focus on one another rather than on the one that truly matters. Question, can two people both be right about a matter that is not pertaining to doctrine but to practice? And the simple answer is yes. So what are the directives as we wrap up these thoughts from this passage of Scripture? Okay, directive number one, we must not despise one another. We must not despise one another. Okay, remember, uniformity is not our goal but all throughout Scripture, we understand that unity is. Is there any rending in the body of Christ? No, we are all one in the body. So uniformity, no. Paul addresses that elsewhere. He says, listen, if all were the hearing, where, where were the seeing? If all were the seeing, where's the smelling? In other words, if we try to make the hand the eye, the hand loses the very purpose for which it was created. So we're not all trying to be the same. We are trying to come together and see the unique differences, not despising one another. That's, again, Romans 14, 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. We might also add that this admonition is both to the weak and the strong. 
Our agreement on non-essential matters is not the priority. Our focus on Jesus is. In Romans 14, 80, he said it this way. Whether we live, we live under the Lord. Whether we die, we die under the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So we must not despise one another. Number two, the Bible allows for a wide range of personal practices. So should we. Verse number five again. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another man esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. This makes us nervous. Oh, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. But we have to agree that we're both persuaded the right way, right? No, over non-moral, morally neutral matters, the non-essentials, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You are not called to persuade anyone else's mind other than your own regarding non-essential matters. Number three, attempting to make us all the same diminishes the breadth of worship to the Lord. Attempting to make us all the same like, like, okay, we're, we're all the same. We're all going to be, listen, in Christianity, where is the beauty of the diversity, the many parts of the body? Again, Romans 14, 6, he that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, he giveth God thanks. These are diametrically opposed practices. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat, and I do this to the Lord. He's offering it to the Lord, but there's someone else. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat. There's someone else who says, listen, when I do, I offer this to the Lord. So now, if my focus is over here, I can't believe he's not eating. Where's the blessing of that? Oh, wrong view. Lord, Lord, this is to you, not to him. And this person over here, I can't believe they're eating. How dare you? No, 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 wrong focus. Lord, when I abstain from this, I abstain unto you. You are the focus. And then think about the beauty of the unity that we find together in the same body of Jesus Christ. Attempting to make us all the same diminishes the breadth of worship. If we only sing the songs one group prefers, if we are limited to the form of response and worship that appeals to the weak or to the strong, if we are bound to the personal preferences of only some, where is the breadth of worship of which the scriptures here are speaking? In Revelation chapter 7, verse number 9, we get an understanding of the breadth around the person. And this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. We get this understanding from not just this passage, but elsewhere, that around the throne of Jesus Christ, there is this multitude of people gathered of every kindred and nation and tribe and tongue. And while there is certainly something of the unique aspect gathered around, who is the focus of this gathering? Oh, the one around whom we are gathered, Jesus Christ. Number four, in non-essential matters, unity, not uniformity, is essential. 
Verse number 8, Romans 14. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. The common denominator of the church is not their agreement on non-essential matters, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one we all share in common. He is to remain the unifying agent in the church. Do you know when, when we started this passage of scripture today, Romans chapter 14, verse number 1, there's a little expression that's used, and I'd like you to take note of it as we conclude our service. In fact, if you underline or circle things in your Bible, you may want to circle at least these two words. It starts, him that is weak in the faith, and here it is, receive ye, receive ye. Now, again, sometimes it's hard to tell who's the strong one and who's the weak one. Sometimes we, we may think, well, clearly I'm the strong one here, but I would suspect that the person who may be weak also assumes that they are the strong one. What is the biblical admonition? Before we start to go through all of what Paul's about to say, which he addresses further throughout the book and throughout the chapter in Romans 14, well, he begins with, all right, hey, listen, as we get started, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Well, I I just can't do this. I, I can't eat that food. Paul seems to indicate that these are those who are weak in the faith. They don't have that liberty because of their history, their background, their culture. I just can't do it. Listen, this is the truth. To this day, there are things that I cannot personally do because of my history, my background, my upbringing. I just like, I can't do that. I know other Christians who do. I know other Christians who can, but I cannot. I'm acknowledging in some areas of life, I am weak in the faith. What he says is, listen, if there are those that are weak in the faith, he says, receive them. You're not trying to defile or hurt or harm or wound their conscience. It's like, okay, you don't have to do that. And then he goes on and look a little bit further at the end of verse number three. He says, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Look at verse three. The end says, for God hath received him. For God hath received him. In some sense, we could say, how dare we reject the one that God has already accepted? Well, you know, I just don't think they should or they should be. Okay, is this one of the essential matters? Or is this a morally neutral matter? This this is not connected to morality. This is one of those areas where they're going to have to choose. The Bible doesn't address this. I I have to stand back a little bit and say, okay, you're, you're going to do that that way. I receive you. Why? Well, because God has. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Why? Because God hath received him. God has already taken them into his own heart. This is the meaning of the word. Receive ye. It means take them to yourself accept them even so far as to take into close friendship it 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 gives the indication granting them access to your heart I know but they're so different from me and that difference makes me uncomfortable God says I've I've already granted them access to my heart I've already brought them into my family 
I've already brought them into close relationship with me. He says, you receive them. Isn't this the beauty of a unique body that is different from any other assembly on the face of the earth? If the assembly of believers, the church, is no different than any other human assembly, then we should figure out all those things that are most important to us. What culturally, what traditionally, what personally, what really matters to us, and let's form a club, let's form some kind of a gathering, and and we'll all do those things that we're really comfortable with. And the Apostle Paul is helping the church understand the body of Jesus Christ should look different than that. It's going to be made up of those who are strong, those who are weak, those who couldn't eat because, oh, that would wound my conscience. It goes against my tradition. I I just can't do that, but I can allow for you. And here are those who understand I can eat this because it's not the thing that's going to defile me. I have Jesus Christ. I don't need the shadow anymore. I can enjoy, but I don't have to have you do this. I, I, can, I can enjoy fellowship with you even though it's not around this. It's around this. Campus Church, followers of Jesus Christ, May we heed the admonition of John the Apostle when he said, Beloved, let us love one another. And may with great discernment and wisdom, we handle with the grace of God what we refer to as disputable matters.